Good morning, church family. It's a joy and a pleasure to be back in the pulpit to deliver God's word to us this morning. For those of you that are new, as Pastor Dave said, my name is Jeff Fisher, and I'm Waikai Church's pastoral intern. And as he said, the beginning of this month marked my one-year anniversary at our church, and I'm so thankful to God for all that I have learned and experienced so far in this internship. And I want to thank you, Waikai Church, for all the love and support that you have given me over the many months that I've been here. Our message from God's Word this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can start making your way there. We'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 1, and if you're using the church's Bible in the seat in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, the passage can be found on page 398. Again, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 1, and our passage this morning is going to tell us what to do when we hit rock bottom, when things seem hopeless. For some of you, that might be where you're at right now. Your days are dark and it seems you're stuck in a pit. You're trying to claw your way out, but then you're falling right back down to the bottom. This is where Nehemiah and the people of God were at during his days. They had hit rock bottom and there seemed to be no way out. So let's turn to the word of God and see what to do when things seem hopeless. Nehemiah 1 We'll begin with verses 1 to 3, but before I read them, let us come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, every page in your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. May it accomplish that which you purpose and succeed in the thing for which you are sending it out today. And may all this bring you the praise and glory you deserve, Lord. I pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah 1, verses 1 to 3, reads as follows. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Here we have a description of what seems to be a hopeless situation. It's winter, it's the 20th year of the king's reign, and Nehemiah is in Susa, Persia's capital. This is odd, though, because Nehemiah is a Jew. He's not Persian. So why is he there? Why is a Jew in a Gentile land. It's not because he's on vacation doing some sightseeing. It's because he was forced to be there. In 598 BC, his people were taken into captivity, conquered by a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. This was God's judgment on his people because for years he had been calling them out to live according to his word, even sending his prophets to warn them to turn from their wicked ways. But the people continuously refused to listen and did whatever they wanted instead. They broke the Sabbath, so they did not take time out of their weeks to worship God. 
And their hearts turned to worshiping other gods, like the Canaanites' fertility god, Baal. They went from worshiping the true, holy, and righteous God to worshiping a man-made false deity who satisfied fleshly desires by demanding prostitution at his temple. This is what always occurs when we don't prioritize the worshiping of the Lord as he instructs us. We may not be sleeping with temple prostitutes, but we all too easily fall into worshiping our man-made idols, whether they be the gods of our other religions or idols of the heart, such as fame, wealth, sex, power, comfort, pleasure, or material things. And so this turning away from God and his word brought judgment on his people. They were dispersed into foreign lands, and it resulted in Nehemiah being in Persia. So that's why Nehemiah, a Jew, is in a Gentile land. In verse 2, we read of his brother coming from Judah to visit him. And it had been a while, likely years. Now imagine not seeing your sibling or your family member for many years. What would you say to them? What would you ask them? How's mom and dad? Did our little brother get married yet? Remember, this is a time without Facebook, phone calls, or snail mail. It wasn't easy to track the lives of your family members. And maybe Nehemiah did ask those questions, but it was not his primary focus. Instead, Nehemiah is laser-focused on two things. First, he wanted to know how the people of God were doing in his homeland, because by the sovereign hand of God, some of those exiled had returned home. After defeating Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in war, the Persian emperor, Cyrus, allowed some of the Jews in his empire to return to their land. But it wasn't really Cyrus that released them. God did. Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Nehemiah wanted to know how God's people were doing. And second, he wanted to know the condition of the city. It's important to note Nehemiah's main concerns are not the weather, the latest trends in Judean cuisine, or the political landscape in Judah. He's anxious to hear about the people of God and the things of God. After years of absence and much being missed, these are the only two things that counted for Nehemiah. Brothers and sisters, are our main concerns in line with Nehemiah's? Do we have a concern for God's people? Are we thinking about their welfare? And do we desire to see them prospering in the church? Do we have a concern over what's God's? Do we have a concern for our place of worship, the church grounds and its property? Do we care about these things? Because the people of God and the things of God are God's. Godly people care about these things. For Nehemiah, the people of God and the things of God are first priority because he knew how important and interconnected they are with his God. What would that look like if that were the case for each of us? Things were already bleak in Nehemiah's day, and it's going to get even more bleak. In verse 3, Nehemiah's brother gives an account, and he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. God's people are in great trouble and shame. 
God's city, Jerusalem, has walls which are broken down and gates that are destroyed by fire. This is crushing news. It's like hearing of the attacks on our own homeland on 9-11. 90 years had passed since those exiled had returned to Jerusalem. 90 years. Think back, where were you in 1932? For 90 years, the restoration of Jerusalem, which was hoped for, is nowhere to be seen. The city is still in shambles for now almost a century. There's no protection from enemy attacks. God's city is a wasteland. Everyone abandoned it, and so it isn't populated. The people are scared, and the city of God is wasted, and there's very little, if any, worship of God at all. This brings shame on the people, and this brings shame on God's name. That is because the people of God and the things of God are interwoven and interconnected with God. Their condition, our condition, it reflects on who God is. When their condition is poor, when our condition is poor, then we are poorly representing God. We're ambassadors of Christ, representing our beloved Savior in this world, and God desires the light of Christ to shine brightly as we live for Him. This isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be the best you can be in the power of your strength, but a great dependence on the God who resides in you, the Holy Spirit, to know God's Word and obey it, so that the world can see that our lives are consistent with what is written in our Scriptures. But when that's happening, it's a shame. And it reflects poorly onto our great and wonderful God. We stain God's reputation. Can you think of a worse situation than this? So what do we do when we encounter such devastation among the people of God and the things of God? What do we do when there's spiritual poverty all around us and within us? Our message this morning has a simple but a powerful answer. What do we do? We pray. When hitting rock bottom before anything else, we must come to God and pray to him, the only one who can do something about the devastation. In other words, if the things of God and the people of God are in shambles, if you yourself are encountering spiritual poverty, get down on your knees and pray. This is exactly what Nehemiah does beginning in verse 4. It reads, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Prayer helps us get a grip on the spiritual poverty in and around us. For Nehemiah, it overwhelms him, and he is full of sorrow. His sadness isn't momentary. The text says that he is weeping and mourning for days. Now what's causing him to have such an emotional reaction it's clear that he's weeping over the condition of the city and the people. Because the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem are supposed to be representing the God of Jerusalem. The temple in the city is where God desired to be worshipped. With the city walls down, the people stayed away, and it resulted in no corporate worship of the God who made the heavens and the earth. This is why Nehemiah is getting so emotional when coming to the Lord. This is what is breaking his heart. 
It was the inability of the people of God to properly worship the Lord as he is supposed to be worshiped. This is what is bringing about a deep sorrow in Nehemiah's heart. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time we got emotional about that which is hindering the worship of God? Perhaps it was when COVID hit and the lockdowns took place. Did you weep at missing church? Maybe it's seeing pro-choice activists interrupt the church's worship service. But truth be told, the worship of God is being hindered all throughout the world because of sin, all the time. Believers in Nigeria are being persecuted by violent Muslim extremists preventing God's worship. A church leader's sinful and scandalous acts can cripple congregations and cause them to close doors. The walls are down in many churches, and it's hindering God's worship. Does this evoke our own emotions? And if so, are we going to the Lord in prayer with sorrow over these things? must understand and feel the situation like Nehemiah feels his situation, and prayer helps us to do just that. Continuing in verse 5, we see that getting a grip on the situation doesn't lead to Nehemiah being crippled by his grief. What is it that breaks him from a continuous spiral in sorrow? He looks up. He exercises faith. He speaks and exalts his God, and he finds hope praying to him. Verse 5 reads, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Prayer recognizes the one in control. Focusing on the Lord is what prevents Nehemiah from being continuously depressed about the report he hears. Focusing on God and prayer lifts us to a different height. Prayer lifts you out of the rock bottom. Nehemiah acknowledges who God is and what he can do. He recognizes that God is all-powerful and over everything, and he recalls God's faithfulness and his enduring love. Prayer can do this. This is reminiscent of Psalm 42, verses 5 and 6, which says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. This is the right response when we encounter spiritual poverty. You must turn to the Lord and gaze at his splendor instead of our broken selves and our situations. We must remember his great power and the great love he has for his people. We must acknowledge first and foremost that he is the awesome God that can do something about our own depravity. Pray and dwell on God more than the rock-bottom circumstances. Pray and recognize that God is over and above everything. And when we have this high perspective, it helps us see our own condition with clarity. Nehemiah prays in verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
when we have that high vertical perspective. Prayer drives us to confess any sins we are committing, as well as the sin that dwells within our hearts. Remarkably, Nehemiah doesn't blame the spiritual poverty of God's city on those that are there. He gets real honest about his own condition and includes himself with the people of Israel. He confesses that he and his father's house are guilty. All have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory, and the sin is against the great and awesome God. Nehemiah recognizes that God is not mean in his judgment against him. He's just. He knows they've done wrong. Friends, as God's people, have we sinned against him? If so, have we turned from it? Have we repented? And what were our motives for repentance? Was it to avoid punishment, just a concern for ourselves? Perhaps it was to get something from God, again, very self-focused. Or was it because there was a genuine concern for God's glory? Friends, may the honor of his reputation be our motive to do away with sin and live holy lives unto him. And we need to get specific with our sin. Nehemiah spells their sin out very clearly in his prayer. They had not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the rules that God had given Israel through Moses. And Nehemiah calls all this out as corrupt acts on their part. God said, don't worship idols, and they are worshiping foreign gods. God told them to observe the Sabbath and cease all work on that day. And they kept on working, buying and selling like any other day, ignoring God. They were commanded to be honest in their business practices, but they were adjusting their scales and stealing while doing business. The words and commandments of God were being ignored and it led to corruption. But prayer brings into focus that any disobedience and every sin um, against God must be called out for what it is a corrupt act against him. Friends, when facing spiritual poverty, let us confess any and every sin to the Lord because God often uses that to bring us back to him. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray. It, because it leads us to confess the things we need to confess to the Lord. Continuing in verses 8 through 10, we read, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Friends, when praying, we can take hold of the promises of God. In his prayer, Nehemiah remembers the words God spoke to the nation of Israel when he covenanted with them. The people had been unfaithful. They had acted corruptly, and consequently, they were scattered. Nevertheless, God had promised the people of Israel that if they returned to him and obeyed his commandments, he would bring them back to where he dwelled. Nehemiah reminds God that, that, and for any Jew in Nehemiah's day, that would mean that God would be bringing them back to Jerusalem. 
because that's where God said he should be worship. God wants worship. It's not about the walls in the city. It's about his people worshiping him. He wants worship. Like Nehemiah, we too should remember God's promises to us even when we hit rock bottom. As God's people, you are under grace and have specific promises to you made by the Lord. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. He says that he'll overcome the world. He guarantees rest for our souls. He assures us that he will give us wisdom if we come and ask him for it. He promises a room prepared for you in your eternal home with him. And there are many more. Theologian Michael Reeves says in this little book titled, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, that, quote, God wants us to argue his promises and his character with him. For then who he is becomes an ever more conscious reality for us. Hold on to those promises of God and pray them. God, you said that you would not leave me here trapped in my sin. Lord, keep me from temptation. You said you would see me through many trials and tribulations. Lord, see me through this. You said you would help me persevere to the end. Lord, help me, pick me up. And then the Lord shows himself faithful and we're in an awe. You do help us with temptation. You do see us through the horrors. You are who you say you are. And we're all the more amazed and it drives us to worship him. So know God's word, friends. Remember the promises of God found in the scriptures and pray them to him when hitting rock bottom. But in order to do that, we must know God's word. Some people want to pray and not read the word. But you can't pray what you don't know. And here we have an example of a man that was saturated in the scriptures. The amazing thing about Nehemiah's prayer is that it's informed by God's word throughout. Verse 5 reflects Deuteronomy 7, 9. His confession in verses 6 and 7 echoes Leviticus 26, 40 to 42. The plea found in verses 8 and 9 is likely from Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 31. And his prayer for success in the following verse, verse 11, is rooted in Psalm 1, 3. What the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said of the Puritan John Bunyan could be said about Nehemiah. Quote, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is biblene. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. End quote. Friends, we too should be saturated in God's word and letting it flow out to him in our own prayers. God's word is not just meant to be sung, read, and preached. It is also meant to be prayed. So know God's word and then pray it. Our last verse, verse 11 reads, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Finally, here in the last verse, we see we must pray for God's mercy when we have hit rock bottom. Nehemiah, as well as others, are recognizing their need and dependency. They're reflecting what Jesus would later point out in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing, but whoever abides in him will bear much fruit. 
Trust is what prayer is. No prayer equals self-dependency. Being prayerful equals dependency on God. Nehemiah knows he can do nothing without the Lord, so he comes to him asking for his mercy. He believes it is only by the Lord's hand and movement that God can, God's city can be restored and the spiritual poverty of God's people reversed. And there's something very specific that Nehemiah is seeking from the Lord in this last verse. He's looking for a particular mercy from God, which could initiate a turnaround. Then of verse 11 in chapter 2 reveals that he would be seeking mercy from the very person he served and protected, the king of Persia. Coming out of many days of prayer, Nehemiah was looking to act, and his action would be high risk. Again, the end of verse 11 reads, Now I was cupbearer to the king. This isn't a boastful statement by Nehemiah. And he's not randomly highlighting for us his position that he checks the king's cups for poison. Instead, he's acknowledging the sovereign work of God who had placed him in an advantageous position. Prayer is not without action. And often we are the answer to our own prayers. As cupbearer to the king, he had frequent access to the only man that could reverse the edict, which was perpetuating Jerusalem's devastation and spiritual poverty. Nehemiah saw that the good that God had done in his life was for God's sake and the sake of God's people. And he's about to put his career, his reputation, and his very life on the line for the sake of God's people and the sake of God's things. He's about to risk death for God's sake. Because requesting a change to a king's edict could very well be perceived as insubordination and betrayal. Therefore, before any action is taken on his part, Nehemiah gets down on his knees, meets with his God, and prays for God-given mercy in all that he was about to do. May we be wise and do the same like this man of God, friends. Pray to the Lord for mercy, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4:15 to 16. We'd be rash to close without considering how Nehemiah 1 alludes to the grand work of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ knew of our own constitution, which was shattered by sin and the devastation that was caused by our wicked hearts. He knew of our great spiritual poverty. He knew we were at rock bottom. The wages of sin is death. And he cried over those miserable wages after coming into this world. And before he took action to die for our sin on that wooden cross, what was he found doing? He was praying. He was praying to his father in the garden. Devastation was close at hand, but prior to the horrors of the cross, which he knew he was about to face, he went to his father in prayer, full of sorrow. But he came out of that time of prayer looking only to accomplish the work he was about to do on the cross for his father through his death and resurrection. Desiring only for his father's will to be done and for us to be saved from what seemed to be our hopeless situation with sin, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Follow the example of your Lord, brothers and sisters. Pray. It's precisely the thing we must do when we hit rock bottom. Pray before acting and let the Lord be our savior from what seems to be hopelessness. Let's bow our heads and come to our great God in prayer even now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. We confess that often we do not come to you in prayer first. When we come face to face with spiritual poverty, whether it be due to our own sin or the sin of others, And admittedly, sometimes we do not come and look to you at all. We're quick to turn to the worthless idols of our hearts rather than to you, the God of heaven. May it be rooted in our hearts that we must come to you instead, for you are our Savior and the only one who is mighty to deliver us from our depravity. And you do deliver us, Lord, and you will deliver us. Thank you for your mighty works. May they ultimately bring you all the glory in our most sincere and heartfelt praise. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.